copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. If you're taking notes and desire to put this, the title of today's sermon is The Unsuspecting King. Today we are observing Palm Sunday, which is the day that we think on the so-called triumphal entry of the Son of David into the city of David. We celebrate the coronation of the one true king who rode into town on a donkey. We're all very familiar with the account of the triumphal entry, no doubt, but I want to encourage you this morning to look at this event with fresh eyes and be struck afresh by how, just how unsuspecting this king is. He is from a nowhere kind of place, from a regular, not noble family, surrounded by regular, everyday people. Isaiah says in his prophecy of the coming Messiah, that he had no form or majesty, no beauty, that he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows as one from whom men hide their faces. This is an unsuspecting king if there ever was one. And this is only further displayed in him riding into town, not on a noble steed, but a lowly donkey on this, the day of his coronation. This ride into town is humble, no doubt, but it is important as all four Gospels have an account of this event. This day marks not only the coronation of the unsuspecting king, but also, as you know, the final week of Jesus' life here on earth. These final days are so important that Matthew in his gospel devotes eight chapters, Luke five and a half, Mark six chapters, John ten chapters, all to the final week of Jesus' life. If you look at John, you read through John, which we're going to be going through, Lord willing, here beginning in two weeks or so. But if you look at that book, almost half of John's gospel is devoted to the final week of Jesus's life. All of this to say that these are important details that are taking place here. These are not cute Sunday school stories. So as we begin the observance of Passion Week, the the final week of Jesus's life, we are anticipating the crucifixion and the resurrection of our King. But today we begin by looking at this unsuspecting King's coronation. If you would, please stand with me as we read God's Word together. It's Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. This is the Word of the one true God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill 
what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on the donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, as we turn our attention to your word, we have sung to you your praises. Now we desire to hear from you from your word. We ask that by your spirit you would open our eyes and our minds and our ears and our hearts to receive what is here in your word. I pray that as I speak that I wouldn't use rely on emotionalism or human intellect, Lord, but that I would just preach what's here in the word because your people don't need to hear from me, they need to hear from you, and we hear from you from your word. I pray that you would help us to see the beauty of this unsuspecting king riding into, a don- into town on a donkey. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. You can be seated. Up to this point in Matthew's gospel and then all of the other gospels as well, we have seen Jesus perform many miracles and heal countless people and teach many things that the religious elite of his day have found deeply offensive. As he has healed people, he has not wanted to have anything like what's happening here happen to him. He has not wanted to make a spectacle. He has not wanted to be paraded around town. He has not wanted uh, the people that he heals to even go and celebrate it in the town square. As a matter of fact, He's quite often is saying, go and tell no one what has happened. He has been more than content to serve in obscurity. Now that in and of itself is a lesson for us all. It could be a sermon on its own, couldn't it? That the incarnate Son of God was intentionally not wanting anyone to know of the great things that he was doing. He knew that if he were to present himself as Lord and present himself as Messiah in in a very public way, that if they were to go around the region proclaiming this, that he was the king of the Jews, that the people would want to take him by force and make him the king. They were expecting a Messiah. We read that, we read that all throughout the Old Testament. There is a coming king, a coming Messiah of God who's going to restore Israel to a place of national prominence, at least so they thought. As a matter of fact, after the miracle of the fish and the loaves, the people did try to take Jesus by force to make him king. Can you imagine? You're going to force Jesus to do something. They tried to take him by force to make him king, but he escaped. And why did he escape? Because it was not his time yet. But now... The time is drawing near. As Matthew writes, that they drew near to Jerusalem, so the hour of Jesus' great suffering is drawing near. In chapter 20, we find that they were leaving Jericho. We know from John's account of this time that Jesus has 
recently resurrected Lazarus from the dead. You remember that, right? From John chapter 11. And that from this time on, John writes, that Jesus had not been walking openly in front of the Jews. This is written because the Pharisees, as you can imagine, were not big fans of anything that Jesus did, much less him resurrecting a man from the dead, bringing a man out of the tomb. John writes that the Pharisees wanted even to put to death Lazarus. Imagine the hatred that these Pharisees have for Jesus and his ministry. He brings a man back from the dead. And by all accounts, Lazarus was probably a pretty good guy. Who could possibly be mad at that? The Pharisees are not only mad, but they also want to put him back to death. Put him back in the grave. They have a profound hatred for Jesus. They put out a word that if anybody sees Jesus, they're supposed to go and tell on him to the Pharisees so that they can arrest him. Many times throughout Jesus' ministry, the gospel writers will tell us that the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus, even picking up stones to stone him with. They hated Jesus. Jesus, though, has been controlling the situation to ensure that he would not be arrested or put to death before the time. It was not his time yet, but now... He's going to arrive in the capital city during the busiest time of the year in the most conspicuous way. This event is designed to stir up the crowds. He needs to foment some some serious emotions from the people because at Friday when the Passover lamb is slattered and slaughtered, Jesus says the one true Passover lamb needs to be slaughtered as well. And so he comes into town stirring up the crowds, making sure that he does all that he can to ensure that come Friday, he's going to be slaughtered as the true Passover lamb. You're looking for Jesus, the one who everyone thinks is the Messiah of God. Well, here he is. It's time for his coronation because the ordained hour of his crucifixion is drawing near. Matthew writes that they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. And the other gospel writers will say that he came to Bethphage and Bethany. These were two villages up from Jericho. Jericho is now is down near, uh, below sea level, near the Dead Sea. And you have to make a, tre- a trek almost straight up the Mount of Olives. It's over 3,000 feet of elevation gain 17-mile walk. This is not a simple little journey. Gabby and I went to the Rocky Mountain National Park last summer. We tried our hand at, or our feet, or our mind, at hiking, and it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. But I remember going up, there's a point where it's just straight up. I don't know how anyone can even walk straight up that way. And I looked at Gabby, I said, this is so beautiful, I want to quit so bad. This is too hard. This is so hard. So imagine how these people at this time are walking straight up over 3,000 feet elevation gain, 17-mile journey. How many things they're talking about with Jesus? At one point leaving Jericho, Jesus pulls his disciples aside and says, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man must suffer 
great things at the hands of the Pharisees and the chief priests, and he must die and be resurrected on the third day. And you know the disciples hated hearing this. You remember from Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus says this, Peter pulls him aside and rebukes Jesus and says, No, Jesus, that will never happen. What do you mean? You're not going to suffer. You're the Messiah of God. You're the, you're the coming King. You're the one who was prophesied. You're not going to suffer. We're going to take Rome by force. They will suffer. And here is now the third time and final time that Jesus is reminding them, the Son of Man must suffer at the hands of lawless men. It must happen. So imagine now this this difficult journey uphill. Imagine what the disciples must be thinking. They have devoted their lives to this Son of Man. They believe that He's the Messiah, the Christ, Peter said. They've given up families, jobs. They've given up everything for this Jesus. Been with Him at least three years or so. And now He's saying He's going to die. Then why are we going to Jerusalem? What do you mean you're going to suffer and die? They've given everything for this man. And soon Jesus will give everything for them and for us. This must be a very difficult journey on the way up. But once they get to the top, there's a beautiful, no doubt, a beautiful scene. As directly across from the peak of the Mount of Olives is the Temple Mount, where they could see the temple and they could overlook the city of David as it sat just beyond the Kidron Valley. And so as they near Bethany, where Lazarus is from, Jesus says, go on ahead, get a donkey, we're going into town, we're going into Jerusalem one final time. Let's look at the directions of the king. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Here we can see that though this is an unsuspecting king, he is king no less. He is sovereign. He is all-knowing. As Jesus walked this earth, it is important that we understand that he was both fully God and fully man. By looking at Jesus, you would not have noticed that he was God in the flesh. As I read from Isaiah 53, he was, it said that there was no beauty in him. There was nothing to look at and say, oh yeah, he's, he's got to be the king. That looks like God in the flesh. He was just a regular old man. He was human. There are some today and throughout history who have taught an awful heresy that Jesus lived his life on earth as a man in right relationship with God. That all that Jesus did, you can do by the power of the Spirit. So if you have the Spirit within you, you can go and raise someone from the dead. You can open blind eyes. You can multiply fish and loaves. This is clearly a grave understanding of the mystery of the Incarnation. We see that Jesus was fully God in many ways throughout his ministry. Here we can see his sovereignty, as I said, and his knowledge. How does Jesus know that there's going to be a donkey and, and a cult upon entering the village? 
how does Jesus even know this detail? He doesn't say, go look for one, and hopefully you'll find it. He says, go into this village, probably Bethphage. As you get into Bethphage, which was a tiny little village, you're going to find immediately upon walking in, there's going to be a donkey, and there's going to be a colt. How does he know this? But not just that, how does he know that someone's going to ask the disciples about what they're doing? Or that once they say the Lord needs them, that that's going to be enough for the man to release the donkey. How does he know? Because Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the sovereign one. He is truly God and truly man. You notice that the disciples don't question Jesus, do they? They simply follow his directions. They go into the village and wouldn't you know, there's the donkey and the colt, just like Jesus said. And as they're untying the pair, Mark and Luke record for us that someone asks what they're doing, just as Jesus said. And they tell the man, the Lord needs them. And the man lets them go, just as Jesus said. Jesus is absolutely in control of this situation. And imagine this. He knows he's headed to Jerusalem to suffer great things, to die, to bear the sins of the world And he doesn't slow down. He's not stopping. He's not trying to find another way. Instead, he's enacting everything to make sure we're going to Jerusalem. This has to happen. Jesus tells the disciples to tell the man, not that Jesus needs the donkey. Look at it. He doesn't say, tell him the teacher, the rabbi needs the donkey. He says, Or he doesn't even say his favorite title for himself, the Son of Man. He says the Lord. Kudios. It's a word that means master, owner. It can be used as a title like sir. The many commentators believe he's using it in the ultimate sense here to mean the sovereign one. We see in our English Bibles here, there's the definite article, the Lord needs them. The L is capitalized. This is indicating the sovereign one, the king, needs this donkey. You see, during these times, it was a king's prerogative to uh, procure for himself an animal to ride on whenever he needed it. It would not be strange for a king desiring to ride into his capital city to require an animal from one of his citizens to ride in on. It's as if Jesus is saying that he is indeed the king. And he is utilizing his royal rights by requiring a beast of burden from one of his subjects. Immediately, the man, he must be a believer in Jesus of some sort because he doesn't put up a fight. He doesn't even say anything. He lets them take the donkey. It's as if he is saying, at your service, my king. After all, this is his coronation. At this point, the question must arise in our minds, at least it does for me, why a donkey? You want to make a spectacle? You want to have a coronation? Didn't they have an Escalade somewhere? There wasn't a Lamborghini? There wasn't something even just a little bit nicer than a donkey? Jesus is desiring to unveil himself as king. You don't do it by riding in on a donkey. In case you're wondering, no, a donkey was not a luxurious animal in these days. 
A donkey was a donkey. It's always been a donkey. It's a donkey. The word even sounds strange. The more you say it, it's a donkey. But why did he do this? Let's look at the prophecy of the king. Verses 4 and 5, the prophecy of the king. This took place to fulfill. This is a purpose statement. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus might have been an unsuspecting king, but he was not unexpected. Reading through Matthew's gospel, it becomes apparent that he isn't only interested in writing an account of the life of Jesus, but also he wants to show over and over that Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of prophecy, that he is the promised Messiah. He's not just someone who has great healing powers. He is the Messiah of God. He uses some variation of this formula that this took place to fulfill was written some 14 times in his gospel. Matthew's key theme in his gospel is to show Jesus as king. And he does so by showing that Jesus fulfills prophecy. Here he wants us to see that what the prophet Zechariah wrote some 500 years previous is being fulfilled in their sight. Technically, he's quoting one part from Isaiah and the rest from Zechariah. But Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's absolutely remarkable how Jesus fulfills his prophecy, not just in being the coming king, not just in coming to the daughter of Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion, not just having salvation and being righteous, but even down to the detail of riding in on a donkey. The next verse there in Zechariah chapter 9 contrasts this coming king as he comes in humbly on a donkey with cutting off the chariot and the war horse. What is the significance of that? The donkey would be symbolic of peace. A man of peace, not a man of war, not a conquering king, rides a donkey. You can't take a donkey into battle and expect to instill any sort of fear in your opponents. Imagine, here comes the conquering king ready for war and he's riding on a donkey. Slow and stubborn, and probably just staring at the ground. It doesn't instill fear in anybody, does it? It's a donkey. And even this tiny detail Jesus fulfills in his life. Why? Because he is the fulfillment of prophecy. And he is the king of peace. We learn that this coming king was not here to overthrow the Romans by military might as they had falsely believed. He is bringing peace. The donkey seems like an insignificant detail, but it's far from it. It's actually very important. This serves as another example of how Jesus lived his life in complete focus on what was written. 
He didn't look at that and say, I'm not going to ride on a donkey. He said, go get me one. I need to fulfill this prophecy. Jesus lived his life in perfect obedience to the word, even when it meant his utter humiliation. Even when it meant his utter humiliation, Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the word. Think of it, friends. He is the king. The prophecy even calls him the king. He was with God. He is God in the flesh. All things are created by him. And it was more than customary that a king riding into his capital in triumph would be coming in with pomp and circumstance, clothed in the finest robes, adorned with jewels and a crown, riding the finest steeds, surrounded by the military's best soldiers and noblemen from, from all over. It was a really big deal what's going on here to see the king coming into the capital on his coronation day. I want to put this into perspective. Queen Elizabeth II, for those of you who keep up with the royal family for some reason, Queen Elizabeth II was coronated in the 1950s. Hers was the last British coronation in recent history. And keep in mind that the queen is largely a figurehead these days. And yet her coronation took 14 months to plan. And it cost more than 55 million dollars. 55 million dollars. A one-day ceremony for a fallen woman who doesn't even truly rule her empire. Yet here is the sovereign of the universe, the word become flesh, the one who was with God in the beginning. And the extent of his preparations for his coronation involve untying a donkey. No foreign dignitaries, no war horse, no robes, no diamond scepter, no crown. The king is riding into town in humility on a beast of burden, surrounded by fishermen, tax collectors, sinners, the ones that the Pharisees hated. He was surrounded by the least of these. Israel was looking for her king to come in might and military force to rid her of the Roman occupation and restore her to pre her previous prominence. They wanted a military messiah. Instead, they got an unsuspecting king full of humility. If ever there was a king deserving of pomp and circumstance, friends, if ever there was a king who could have demanded the adoration, glory, and honor, and also been worthy of it. It's Jesus. But instead, he is content to simply fulfill what is written about him and display perfect obedience and humility. This begs the question, are you this way? Are you happy to live and serve in obscurity? Are you happy to never demand more but simply abide by what is written for you to do, even if it means your humiliation. Even if it means your humiliation. Jesus doesn't need any of this because he knows better than any of us what he tells Pilate, that his kingdom is not of this world. This unsuspecting king does not need a war horse and military force to advance his kingdom, for his kingdom is not of this world. He doesn't need an earthly crown made of gold and precious jewels or purple robes for his kingdom is not of this world. 
This is why he will control this situation to make sure what is written is fulfilled. He is doing all of this knowing that he is headed to Jerusalem to suffer at the hands of the Pharisees and the chief priests. He knows what is coming. And instead of easing up, instead of saying, no, let's find a different way, he tells his disciples to get his donkey for his coronation, for it is the week of his crucifixion. The long-awaited son of David who will sit upon the throne of David is headed for the city of David where he will suffer, bleed, and die. What kind of king bleeds and dies and suffers? I'll tell you which kind. It's the kind of king whose kingdom is not of this world. Let's look at the coronation of the king, verses 6 through 9. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, the, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. While Jesus' temporal coronation was not full of luxury and opulence, it wasn't without excitement. This was a true coronation. Here we see the moment of what we call the triumphal entry. Let's be reminded there, there are great multitudes here in Jerusalem that are already there and that are headed to Jerusalem. For this week marks the beginning of Passover for the Jews. And the observance of Passover was commanded for all Jews, and those who were reasonably able to must come to Jerusalem for this celebration. John records for us that since the Passover was at hand, many Jews had gone up to Jerusalem to purify themselves before observing the feast. And this is where we learn at the end of John chapter 11 that everyone was looking for Jesus. They were looking for him to see whether he would come to the feast. As you know, the Pharisees are particularly interested in his appearance, as we mentioned earlier, that they had given the orders that if anyone saw him, to let them know so that they could arrest him. Many surely thought this was indeed the Messiah, for they had heard of Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus in the nearby village of Bethany. Everything is coming together. The people's emotions and excitement are being stirred up into a fever pitch. John tells us that many were with him and they were excited because of the many signs and miracles that he had done. They were thrilled at all of the wonderful things Jesus was doing. He's healing my hands. He's healing my eyes. He's healing my crippled legs. Everything is coming together perfectly. Those who follow Jesus take off their cloaks as a sign of honor to put upon the donkey and on the road in a sort of way of rolling out the red carpet for a person of importance. We also find that branches are being cut to be placed on the road with the cloaks. Some of them are waving the branches. There are people behind him and before him. You can imagine an incredible crowd gathered round as many truly do see this as an important event. Some people estimate that there could have been a couple of million people gathered in Jerusalem. This is, make no mistake, an unsuspecting king, a very humble coronation 
but this is a real spectacle. There is a great thronging multitude surrounding Jesus. And why? This is the Messiah who is going to free us from the Romans. Hallelujah. He's healing us. He's going to free us. He's going to give us all the things that we've ever wanted. The palm branches that they had are also of significance. They symbolized victory and triumph. This is why they call it the triumphal entry. That along with the fact that they're crying out, Hosanna. This was another chant of victory. But it literally means, save us. In Psalm 118.25, that's what they're quoting. It says, save us, we pray, O Lord. Save us. Hosanna to the son of David. Save, save now, son of David. In the way that Matthew writes it, it indicates that they were probably shouting it all the way from the top of the Mount of Olives, all the way down through the Kidron Valley, all the way through the city gates of Jerusalem. We're talking a couple of miles that people are surrounding Jesus, shouting and celebrating these shouts of victory and triumph. The people are excited and filled with great emotion because they correctly attribute to him Messiahship, but they mistakenly believe what he's here to do. They believe, again, that he's coming to restore the kingdom to Israel. In calling Jesus the son of David, they're saying, this is the coming king who was promised to David in 1 Samuel, who would have an everlasting kingdom the Pharisees, they're standing nearby, and as you can imagine, they're not thrilled about what's going on. They knew full well the implications of what the crowds were shouting. Luke tells us in his account of the event that the Pharisees said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Do you hear what they're saying? They're calling you son of David. They're saying, Hosanna. Luke even writes that they call him king. They're saying that you're the Messiah. Tell them to stop. Do you hear what they're saying? I love how Jesus responds. He says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The king might not be coming with all of the usual pomp and circumstance, but he is no less glorious than earthly kings in all of their beautiful array. In fact, he is more glorious. This king is full of grace and truth. He is the radiance of the Father. He is so worthy of glory and honor and praise that if the people for some reason decided to stop praising him, the rocks, creation itself would cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. He is an unsuspecting king, but he is not lacking in glory. The Jews were obsessed with this idea of Israel once again being free from the Romans, once again being adored by all of the nations, being prosperous. They wanted Rome to be removed by force. Even after Christ is risen from the dead, his disciples still don't get it. They ask him in Acts chapter 1, Lord, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? When is it going to happen? They still don't get it. That's what these people are after. And that is why they are now ignoring the command to turn Jesus over to the Pharisees. Instead, they're shouting and celebrating because they think that this is the one who will give them prosperity. But let's be reminded. 
Christ's kingdom is not of this world. He isn't coming to make war with the Romans, but to make peace between God and man. He wasn't coming to spill the blood of Israel's enemies, but his own blood for his own enemies. This is why once the Jews realized that he isn't the Messiah, they wanted to rule over them, they trade in their Hosanna for crucify him. Only days later, today they're shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In a few days, they will say away with him. We don't want this man to rule over us. His kingdom is not of this world. He's not going to restore us. Away with him. Praise and acclamation today. Today the crowd is in a wild uproar filled with excitement that the one who comes in the name of the Lord is here. Praise and acclamation. Praise and acclamation. It won't be long before this same crowd turns on him in such hatred that they would rather have the murderous rebel Barabbas than this holy, gentle, humble king. They did want Messiah. They wanted Messiah desperately. They just didn't want this Messiah. They wanted a king sent from God with all their hearts. They just didn't want this king. Friends, so it is today. People want a God. People want a mighty ruler. People are very okay with the kind of Savior who will keep them from the flames of hell. Who doesn't want that? Everyone loves the Jesus who heals. Everyone who loves the Jesus who gives you blessings and prosperity. Oh, it's easy to celebrate on the mountaintop. It takes no faith at all. People are thrilled at the idea of heaven. Gold streets, mansions. That sounds great. A God who has a good plan for me to prosper me. Sign me up. But the God who rules. No thanks. The God who demands holiness. I'll pass. The king who commands that we repent and believe people hate that Jesus today as much as they did in the Gospels. People are filled with excitement when they hear of the love and grace and mercy and blessings. People are overjoyed upon hearing of the Jesus who will help them succeed at work, step into their destiny, or finally get the man or woman of their dreams. But then when they find out about the real Jesus, the Jesus whose kingdom is not of this world, they hate him. A Jesus whose kingdom is not of this world, I love this world. I love the stuff of this world. I wonder if there are ways in your life that you have propped up a false image of who Jesus is in your mind. I wonder if you've expected material blessing of some kind from this reigning king. That, if you, that you've bought into the lie that tithing works like some kind of spiritual investment plan where you can put in a certain amount and you can expect a certain amount back. I wonder what ways you have these false expectations that following and loving Jesus means success and material prosperity. To think, believe, and order your life that way is to commit the same error that these people did, expecting a Messiah who will give you material success and prosperity, when all over the New Testament we hear the echo of Jesus' words, my kingdom is not of this world. 
And so, my friends, we can't trust in excitement and in emotions. People think that because they shed a tear during a worship song, that means that it was the Spirit. These people are in an uproar. They are thrilled. They're excited. If you looked at this with your natural human eyes, you would say, what a great move of God is happening there. It wouldn't be long until almost all of them would turn on Jesus. This might have been a true coronation of a true king, but the people had false intentions. They had false motives. And so it is today, friends. It's no different. We can get in the, up in a tizzy, all worked up and excited, and be real fired up about Jesus' stuff. But what matters is, do you love Jesus himself? Not what he gives you. If he ordained for you the rest of your life that you suffer and you make minimum wage and you struggle financially, are you still going to be as excited about this Jesus? Or are you going to walk away from him disappointed, thinking, this isn't the king that I want to reign over me? All of this hinges upon the identity of the king, verses 10 and 11. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is another word on the excitement of the crowd surrounding Jesus. Matthew says the whole city was stirred up. It's a word that's used for earthquakes. This was a lot of excitement. The multitude is in a wild uproar. Again, the people have been waiting generations for the coming Messiah of God. And some people believe that this is Him. The author records that some people are asking the eternity-defining question. Who is this? The answer is bewildering. This is the prophet, Jesus. Right question, wrong answer. However, if Jesus is a prophet, he's the prophet who was prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15 that the Lord would raise up. But the people did not understand who it was that was right in front of them. This is no mere prophet. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. Sadly, this unsuspecting king to many is the entirely unknown king. The question of the identity of Jesus is the most important question in history. Everyone has their own commentary on who they think Jesus is today, and it was no different during Jesus' own time. You remember just a few chapters previous in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks the question, who do people say that I am? What's the response? John the Baptist, some people say Elijah or Jeremiah, maybe one of the other prophets. Everyone has an idea of who Jesus might be, and to, for a regular mortal man, those are high compliments. But for Jesus, this falls woefully short. The answer to this question is so important that when Peter answers this question correctly in Matthew 16, Jesus tells him, tells Peter, that on the solid rock of this confession of who Jesus is, Jesus will build his church. Who is this? Oh, Jesus is love. Jesus was a really kind man. Jesus was just a really moral teacher. He was a really good guy. 
He was a religious figure. Perhaps the Christ is a cosmic force that we all take part in, that somehow lies dormant within us all, like the New Age people teach. Who is this? How do you answer this question? The confession that every Christian makes is the same one that Peter made, that he is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is Savior, Redeemer, King of kings. He is Lord of lords. Jesus Christ is God. But do you believe this? Friends, you must. For there is no other name given among men by which they must be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way to the Father. As he rode into town on the beast of burden, he was headed to bear the burden of sins of his people. Did he bear your burden? Are you counted among those whose sins Christ paid for? Have you repented and believed in the name above all names? Know this, for the benefits of Good Friday and the hope of Easter morning to apply to you, you must receive this king into your gates. Friends, if you do know this king, I want to ask you, how much more should we be stirred up by this king? How much more should you and I, who know the identity of this king, how much more should we be stirred up about him and by him if this thronging multitude didn't even know who he was? If they didn't even truly love him and believe in him? And they're stirred up into this much of an uproar. How much more should you and I be so fired up about Jesus at all times in our lives that people around you can't help but ask, who is this? Who is this person you keep talking about? Who's Jesus? Who is this God? Tell me about him. He's this great that you're always so excited about him. Tell me about him. Or is it, as J Jacob said in Sunday school, people are a bit surprised when they find out you're a Christian. Oh. There was a man, Nabil Koresh, several years ago who's passed on to be with the Lord. He was a Muslim at one time. And he says in his documentary that he always believed that if Christians really believed in Jesus that no one ever told him about Jesus because they either hated him or they didn't really believe that Jesus saves. Friends, what is it for you? Who are the people in your life that you're surrounded with all the time? Most of us are around unbelievers all the time. And if all we do is spend time talking about the things of this world, as much as you say it, you are not advancing the kingdom of God because his kingdom is not of this world. If you're more excited to talk about fantasy football or decorations or style or the weather with the people who are in your life who don't believe, friends, are you really stirred up this way for Jesus? Can we really say that we have been that emotionally charged about Jesus when people around us don't even hear about him? If that's been you, I challenge you 
not just to try real hard to be excited. Read the Gospels. Read Jesus' life. Look at him, and don't just read it like words on a page. Understand that this is Jesus, the Word become flesh, who dwelt among us. Examine him. Stand in awe of who he is. Because, friends, when you do, you will stand back amazed, and you will see how woefully short you fall of his glory. He's so much better than you and I in every conceivable way. We're nothing like him. He's nothing like us. He's perfect and without blemish. And yet, he went to Jerusalem on the donkey to bleed and to die. Is he not worthy, friends, of us being stirred up for? Is he not worthy of that? Those who have received this king will be a part of the full realization of what took place in this triumphal entry. One day we will see the true king and we'll see that his kingdom is not of this world. Though he was an unsuspecting king in his time on earth, on that day we will finally see the fullness of this king's glory. I'm going to close by reading you Revelation 7, 9-12. through 12. After this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. To this we say, Amen. Let's pray. Oh Father, we thank you. For sending your son in love to die for sinners. We thank you, Christ, for being willing to fulfill prophecy even when it meant your humiliation, for suffering greatly for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be stirred up by that, to spend more time gazing at the cross, gazing at your glory than we do the things of this world. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to build this kingdom or kingdoms for ourselves here on earth, which amount to nothing more than sandcastles. I pray that we would spend our lives, give ourselves, spend ourselves for your glory and your kingdom, which is not of this world. I pray that we would be so stirred up that people couldn't help but ask, who is this Jesus? That you would give us opportunities and courage to speak of this king who's glorious and who demands our worship because he's worthy of it. Lord, we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.